CBAM WPP Distinguished Lecture and Panel China and the Rise of the BRICS marked 15 years of CBAM's collaboration with WPP. It brought together distinguished minds and experts on China, India, Brazil and Russia and leading international analysts and businessmen and women. WPP CEO Sir Martin Sorrell chairs the CBAM Global Advisory Board. Dr. Christos Patelis, director of CBAM, spoke of the importance of bringing together leading academics and business minds. We are very proud to be celebrating uh, 15 years of continuing and successful collaboration with WPP. We are marking this on this occasion with this uh, event that we are co-organizing, which uh, is uh, dealing with the issue of China and the rise of BRICS and is using this as an opportunity to also launch WPP's uh, Brand Z Top 50 Most Valuable uh, Chinese Brands. It was a timely conference, coming in the same week as China announced a GDP growth rate of just over 10% in 2010, and US President Barack Obama and Chinese President Hu Jintu were meeting in the USA. It was, as much by design as by chance, that the CBAM Global Advisory Board had used its collective foresight and chosen to launch WPP's brand-said Top 50 most valuable Chinese brands at its first event of 2011. Dr. Patelis again. We are very proud of the ability of our board members, our global advisory board, to select topics well in advance, which turn out to be very topical near the time of a symposia. Uh, we organize a couple of symposia per year, and the topics for this symposia are selected by our board members. And what I found to my fascination is that uh, business people, being much nearer the market and uh, much nearer reality, they have a sense of what's going to happen, a sense that unfortunately, us academics, are more, it's more difficult to develop. So in the past, for example, our board members have chosen topics like aging and pensions, like the financial crisis, like uh, the emergence of Russia, of China, of India, uh, many years before uh, these things, these topics became very big, and sometimes they became very big exactly at the time that the symposia have taken place. Now, in the beginning, you might say that was a, that could have been a bit of a coincidence that has been happening on and on and on to such an extent that you become sort of you start believing that having 15 very select top business people at the board who are thinking what is going to be the next big thing, they are likely to use their dispersed knowledge and come up with very top ideas. And, and indeed, it is a topical top idea because President Ho, President Obama, they've been meeting in the USA this week. If we dig down into the presentations we heard today from experts in, in China, experts in Russia, experts in Brazil, uh, we've just heard from Dr. Gabriel Palmer. Have you, if you like, got a favorite in terms of the emerging economies and the rise of the BRICS? Is Russia a good bet, for instance, in its stocks? Is Brazil 
underestimated? Is China overestimated? Well, I mean, it's difficult to say because all of these economies have their advantages and they also face challenges. My bet would be with China. Uh, I have question marks about the ability of the other countries to sustain this uh, economic growth. China is the bet. Uh, having said this, China is also facing difficulties. It's also f- is facing some demographic difficulties. Uh, it's facing difficulties even, it's been rather slow in developing its own branch. Even with today's presentation, we saw that it's, uh, it's, uh, it's having some success in developing some top brands, but these are still mostly top brands within the Chinese market, less known to, the, to a Western audience. Of course, China is using the fantastic opportunity for here of the global financial, of the Western actually global financial crisis to acquire some brands and it's, it's, being, it's leveraging this capability to, to get to, to transfer knowledge back and develop capabilities which sooner or later will allow, will allow it to actually either own and or develop own brands which may be comparable and with uh, western ones still not there yet as also we... as I mentioned in my talk if I may say this Despite all the talk about the rise of China, it's still very interesting that China at the moment only has 6% of global foreign direct investment, and this compares with 50% of uh, the U.S. peak and 50% of uh, the U.K. uh, peak back in 1947 and 1914, respectively. So in some ways, it has a long way to go. And sustainability, very much something CBAM takes to heart. This is our central topic from number one. It's been a central theme since the inception of CBAM. I have to admit that for at least a solid 12-year period, it was considered to be a non-issue because the Western economies were facing an an unprecedented expansion. That expansion was based at the very successful generation of wealth in BRICS and the developing countries. Now that uh, the crisis has hit the, the Western world, it is actually very important to start uh, thinking about sustainability very seriously. And I'm glad that now everybody is considering this issue, the founding issue of SIBAM, as one of the most important ones in the global economy. This foresight between academia and business is key to the success of the CBAM WPP conferences. Mr. David Roth, CEO, EMEA and Asia, the store WPP, said the unveiling of WPP's brand said top 50 most valuable Chinese brands was an important moment for the international business community. I think one of the um, great combinations of uh, the WPP and CBAM relationship over the last uh, 15 years has been um, looking at some of the topics that um, are bubbling under that uh, will have a significant influence in the way in which the tectonic plates of uh, the worldwide economy will be reshaping. And clearly there isn't a a bigger topic um, that has so much impact across many different uh, spheres as the relationship between uh, the growth of the BRICS uh, and the growth of uh, the more um, established economies. Well, well, let's take it from the point of view of the investor. From what you've heard today, is the rise of, of China inevitable? We've heard about the you know, 10% rise in GDP. It's going to overtake America. It's, it's overtaken 
Japan to, to you know, and, and the Chinese feel so proud of that. Is there anything that could stop it? Um, I think there are huge drivers uh, in China that mean that um, over the um, short to medium term, um, there will definitely be significant increases in uh, GDP and, uh, and wealth creation in China. One of the things that I have noticed in my experience of operating companies in China um, is that uh, it's never a straight line, it's never an easy ride, and there's certainly going to be lots of bumps uh, in the road. Um, I would imagine that that will be the case in the way in which the GDP of China will develop. I don't suspect for one minute, if you look over the course of the next 10 to 15 years, we will have GDP growth in China at you know, 10.5%, 10.2% per year um, every single year over the course of the next 10 years. It will go up as well as down. The phenomenal achievement of China's economy and its double-digit growth is worrying some observers, but it is being embraced by others. China's own domestic market and huge population will contribute to its success unless social unrest becomes a more pressing issue for its leaders. The economic power of the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India and China as a group leaves the experts and analysts scratching their heads and comparing and contrasting the relative strengths of each economy, wrath of WPP again. One of the overriding um, issues that's come out of uh, this, this distinguished lecture series is the fact that we should be concentrating more than we are on Brazil. When you have a look at the fundamentals of Brazil, it's you know, young population, um, the changes that are going on in Brazilian society, the growth of the middle class in Brazil, we tend to sort of underestimate it, I think. You know, the, the sexy thing to talk about uh, is China versus India, who, which is going to be more dominant over the longer period. And I think we all really don't uh, concentrate enough on uh, the the changes that are going on in Brazil and the opportunities that the Brazilian market will represent to a number of major brands around the world. Now, you heard about this worldwide, if you like, growth of the middle class, where they are, because that's where the markets are. And we know sort of mass markets, cheaper goods is the way brands are going in the future. But do you think, you know, was it predictable that, that, that actually, if you like, there'd be a levelling out between the, the West, if you like, a management of decline and a coming up of the emerging economies? I think if you, again, take a longer perspective and look at the numbers, in a sense, it was inevitable. I think the thing that's caught everybody uh, unawares, in a sense, is the rapid speed that this has happened, accelerated by you know, the global recession and the fact that China, has, China and, and some of the BRIC countries didn't uh, have uh, as big an impact as the more developed markets had during the uh, global recession and recovered significantly faster. And I think it's because... Um, if you are a, a global organisation um, and you are looking to grow at faster uh, than the average rate in your sector, you have to now be looking at marketplaces that are going to grow bigger than your home market, uh, typically you know, more developed markets in Europe and in America. And therefore, many more CEOs uh, and uh, strategy boards are looking closer at uh, the fast-growing markets in a way that they certainly weren't before the recession because uh, growth in the more established and domestic markets was slightly more guaranteed. Now it's not. It's not often that you get seminal moments in world history such as these. The balance of one set of economies in the West is tipping inevitably in favour of other regions of the world.
While politicians may see it as a threat to their domestic economies, the business community is having to grasp the challenges and opportunities that are coming their way. The West is having to compete against a cheaper labour force, new models of business practice and constant R&D innovation and change in these up-and-coming brick economies. So what is it that gives the Chinese the edge? Professor Peter Williamson, Professor of International Management, Cambridge Judge Business School, is a China man. One of the uh, things I think is important to realize about Browns, as I think as President Obama famously put, you can't put lipstick on a pig. So you need to be able to have a source of value added and a differentiated offering uh, for the consumer before you can use the brand to uh, have a sound uh, to build on a sound platform. So what I uh, think is very important is to understand that Chinese companies have been ramping up their innovation and value-added, and that has provide, provided that sort of platform for brands to be built upon. And we're just at the cusp of them starting to build brands, firstly inside China, and I think eventually uh, overseas as well. Yes, because there's the domestic market and the international market, but the domestic market is huge, something you always uh, point out. But also the time that it takes to get innovation to market is, is so speeded up compared to the West. That's what I think has surprised many Western commentators. They thought that it would take 20 or 30 years for China to make any significant uh, steps forward on innovation. But of course, in a market that's growing at double-digit rates, you have enormous ability to drive down a learning curve fast, to run things out into the market, get feedback from the customers, improve them. So actually the innovation process can move a lot faster in these brick markets than it can in the uh, mature markets where you don't have the same growth and therefore you don't have the same beautiful sandbox to use to test and improve things. Those dragons at our door will reshape global competition through their can-do attitudes, the speed at which they bring competitive, innovative products through investment in R&D to market gives Chinese brands a high value and a low price. Professor Williamson again. Many people still think of China's advantage as having these hundreds of millions of assembly workers, but Uh, many Western companies have already been able to tap into that benefit of China and therefore the real competitive game is about who has the ability to tap into the low-cost engineers in China, uh, of which there are many, many uh, compared to the rest of the world. And and of course they're graduating them at ever-increasing rates. And a disproportionate amount of the graduates in China, of course, are in science and engineering compared to the West. In a week where we have seen President Ho visit President Obama, he's been to Africa, he's been to see our Prime Minister David Cameron too. One of the fascinating things I thought about Doreen Wang's research, looking at those top 50 most valuable Chinese brands, when you broke it down, was how actually the Chinese liked to think of themselves as American or Western in terms of what they owned and had aspirations to own things. Yes, I I think that's true. But one of the uh, subtle distinctions I think that you need to make there that came out in her results is that it's... uh, 
it's not only Western or American brand associations that they're interested in. They're open to so many different uh, possibilities of brand building and brand loyalty. And they could be Chinese, they could be uh, American, they might be European, or they might be J Japanese or Korean or, or something else. So it's a very fluid environment. And I think it's important in that environment to make sure that we don't carry too much of our prejudices and thinking from the way people approach brands in our markets, because it might be quite different. And I think the distinction between the way Chinese think about foreign brands and Chinese brands often way overstated. They are just interested in brands and the value proposition that companies can put forward to them. Now, there seems to, to be a consensus, finally, Peter, that if you look at, you know, we've always talked about China pitted against India, you know, the race to, to be the sort of, if you like, the top nation and China now overtaking Japan, moving on uh, to overtake America. It looks like in 10 years' time from the, the GDP figures out this week of 10.1%. But, but are you surprised about what you've heard about Brazil today? Uh, Dr. Jonathan Garner indeed thought he would tip Brazil to come forward in terms of the rise of the BRICS. Well, I, I think his comments are interesting, and I have no reason to think they, they're not right. But I think you have to keep Brazil in perspective. Brazil is less than a quarter of the size of China or India in terms of population. So they may actually move uh, forward at, at a rapid rate, and they are doing some great things in sustainable energy and agriculture and different sorts of technology. And democratizing, you know, over 50% of Brazilians now middle class? That's, all of that's correct. But again, I come back to my point that you need to keep them in perspective. Uh, there are several hundred million Brazilians. There are more than uh, going for 1.5 billion Chinese, and India will soon surpass China as the largest population uh, in the world. So, uh, yes, there'll be an interesting area, but they're not going to make uh, the global impact that, that nearly 40 to 50% of the world's population in those two big countries are going to make as they change the way they, they consume, the way they live, uh, and the kind of brands and technologies that they buy. So you remain, at the end of this conference, a China man. <laughs> that may be my delusion or it may be my insight. Only time will judge. Now, for that moment of unveiling of WPP's brand-said top 50 most valuable Chinese brands at the CBAM WPP Distinguished Lecture and Panel, China and the Rise of the BRICS. Who's in and who's out? Doreen Wang, Group's Account Director, Millwood Brown, China. From the brands, we evaluated over 400 brands and across 23 categories. And we see that these top 50 brands actually cover over 19 categories. And apparently, China's economy is providing space for lots of brands in many different fields to grow. It's not only those brands under the China name, but also lots of innovators are growing from ground zero. But, but the development costs in China are that much less than in America. And the development times as well at which you can turn around a product and a brand. 
Yeah, the development time is quite is very dynamic, and uh, it's a lot, uh, quite a few of these brands are actually developing at a very rapid speed over the past five six years, and this uh, and uh, this dynamic market is providing this opportunity. You spoke of the internet too, didn't you? That China, you know, it eats up information. That the Chinese love the internet and going and finding out more. And, and indeed, you know, the top brand was China Mobile, and and then China's sort of march on Google too. Is there no stopping China? <laughs> um, and uh, as you just pointed out, and the internet is definitely fast growing in China, and we found that the Chinese consumers' behavior on the internet is dramatically different from the Western counterparts. They are more entertainment oriented on the internet. They surf more, and they uh, chatting more, and playing online games. And this that's created this very sophisticated and unique media ecosystem, which provide brands lots of opportunity to grow on the digital. world. Like their Western counterparts, the Chinese stay loyal to their brands, but value for money is still key. We learned there were three types of Chinese brands: giants, innovators, and image builders. Brands that strongly bond included Baidu, Great Wall, and Mangju. They may not be household names in the West yet, but watch out: these top 50 Chinese brands are worth. Two hundred and eighty billion dollars. Wang again. And the top 50 brands、uh, evaluation we recently did, we identify three types of brands are rising in China. And the number one is those China's giants, those under the name of、uh, the big China name. And the second time is China's innovators, those brands who actually build up their brands from ground zero. And the third types we identified is those China's image builders, and they. Develop their image and、uh, and、uh, try to develop this meaningfully differentiating brand positioning in China and bonding with consumers. And the bonding with consumers is key, and, and that's changed over recent years, hasn't it? You looked at how it's changed, and and how you know they're not Chinese aren't necessarily loyal to a brand. They're willing to try out new brands, but they're very proud of what's happening in China itself. Absolutely, and the、uh, Chinese consumers are are bonding with. Uh, brands uh, more and more over the past years, and、uh, we see that China Chinese consumers are not like bonding with one brand. They actually consider a short list of brands, what we call is brand repertoire, and、uh, we we are very happy to see that Chinese consumers are moving away from this price driven a little bit more toward this short brand list, and they, those are the brands they prefer to buy. They have a short list of brand preference. Getting a share of those huge, growing domestic Chinese markets is going to become increasingly important for Western businesses, and developing the right business strategy is essential. Western brands will need to understand and empathise and respect Chinese culture to succeed. Will Galgi, global CEO, the Futures Company. Probably a number of different groupings within the top 50, but I guess perhaps the most interesting ones to focus on are those that are really understanding、um, and, and keeping up with the fast pace of change in consumer、uh, needs and attitudes towards brands in the Chinese marketplace, and recognizing the growing sophistication、um, of people's needs and, and their ability to appraise and assess and, and compare across across brands. So those brands that are kind of keeping pace. With the sophistication、um, of、uh, consumers.
And you told that lovely story about going to a hotel and, and you know, when, when China overtook Japan as the second uh, uh, biggest or, or leading nation, that, you know, the, the pride in that, even though they couldn't express it in, in terms of, of your language. But we've also had in the news, haven't we, about China, its GDP, its growth of 10.1% last year. You know, it, it's due to overtake America. It's phenomenal stuff. Yeah, absolutely incredible. And, and as you say, um, you know, it's, it's very, very striking if you spend any time in China, um, the, the, the incredible level of optimism. And you can almost feel it in the air. And um, it's an incredibly exciting place to be. And um, there's, a, there's a huge kind of feeling of pride um, across the population. That increasing sophistication of the Chinese consumer will present challenges to Western brands wanting to succeed there. Galgi again. The thing that we didn't really cover in great detail today, but I think is is important, is the the kind of growing inequalities um, and the potential for social unrest. And and um, you know, I don't think that's going to stop the march of China, but it but it certainly you know can create some um, some problems along the way. And what, in terms of your research, do you think makes China stand out in, in terms of these brick economies, the developing economies? Probably, uh, it's hard to say what makes them stand out specifically, but potentially the, um, the, you know, the level of optimism and confidence that China has about its, its you know, place in the world both today and going forward. President Ho's visit to the USA hot on the heels of his tour of eight nations in Africa and Britain was well received. It's not just that China wants to tap the market's knowledge and natural resources of others, but that the success of Western economies now depends on us exploiting those growing markets in China and building our brands there. There are now estimated to be 350 million Chinese middle class people. Professor Norina Hertz, a fellow of Cambridge Judge Business School. Well, I think it's pretty much a given that China is a massive market that still has to be fully tapped. The estimates are that by 2030, there will be 350 million Chinese of a middle income. So if you just think about the size of the domestic market, I think China's really got a lead above everyone else. Um, But other economies are looking strong in the region too. Um, Brazil's doing well at the moment at least, really fueled off the back of a rise in commodity prices um, and public investment and also um, having weathered the financial crisis well. And India we are seeing growth of course also based on low-cost labour, innovation in technological areas and also a market that still has to be fully tapped. So all three looking reasonably good bets for the near term. And, and of course in Russia, those stock market prices being very low. You know, could Russia be the bet because it's the outsider? Well, Russia, again, a lot of its success is commodity-based. If you look at the top Russian companies, they tend to be in the oil and gas sector or other commodity sectors. Um, so decoupling Russia's su- future success from the rise in commodity prices, I think it's unclear yet as to where Russia's trajectory will be. Okay. 
if we listen to Professor Peter Williamson, I mean, he was, if you like, euphoric about just how quickly China can get a, an innovation and an idea to market. He talked of their engineers, the production process, the lead-in times being that much quicker than its competitors, America or, or the West. Do you think it's impressive? China's rise is massively impressive in terms of its brand innovation, in terms of the fact that they're managing to grab large market share in foreign markets in the United States in certain sectors, um, with the fact that of the 100 biggest brands in the world, Chinese companies are now significantly figuring there. So China, the rapid rise of China is definitely real and looks like it's going to continue perhaps even more rapidly. In or out, up or down, short and long term, the rise of the BRICS is not just a challenge, but an opportunity too. China's growing domestic markets and impressive GDP figures will give it a lead, but India and Brazil are good bets too. Professor Hertz again. I will take away from this very thoughtful conference a few main points. Firstly, that when we think about the BRICS, we definitely need to realize that these are four very different countries and we shouldn't try and aggregate them and come up with a conclusion um, assessing them as a group because they are very different. Even more than that, each country is huge and has very different regions within the country. So even when we're talking about Brazil, we're actually talking about five different regions in Brazil. If we're talking about China, we're talking about numerous provinces. We're talking about differences between people in the cities and people on the coast and people in the countryside. Um, different income levels across countries. Um, so, so I think key lesson to take away is that there are four different countries. Each country has got many differences. And when one's targeting um, how one's going to approach these markets, um, either as an investor or if you are selling to these markets or if you're going to produce in these markets, one has to take really into account the particularities of the locality that you're talking about, the particular culture, history and institutions of that very specific place. And, and just 10 years' time, China will be the, the largest economy. It's overtaken Japan. It will overtake America. That 10.1% growth in GDP that was announced this week and that meeting between President Ho and, and President Obama, there's nothing to stop China getting to the top. Well, definitely with the West where it is right now, I would put my money on China. China.